Anna Moore is someone I deeply admire. She was born in 1745 in Bristol in England. And from a very young age, she showed remarkable talent as a writer. By the age of 18, she'd already published her first dramatic script and was starting to receive attention in, in some of the elite literary circles in London. By the time she was in her early 20s, she had befriended some of the most influential English thinkers of the 18th century, from the political philosopher and statesman Edmund Burke to the famous author, Dr. Samuel Johnson. For someone who came from a middle-class background like she did, and who was having to work against the many limitations that women faced in her time, Hannah's early success could hardly have been more impressive. Her future was bright, a life of public recognition, wealth, fame, and influence. But that's not what I admire about Hannah. No, what I admire is the fact that she gave all of that up. She didn't pursue a life of literary fame and fortune. Instead, she dedicated her talents to a number of other causes. She published numerous poems and engaged in political advocacy on behalf of the abolishment of slavery. She helped to found numerous schools in impoverished working-class towns, which would educate young children who were working throughout the week. She published simple stories and tracts that could be read and enjoyed by those who had limited reading abilities. For more than six decades, Hannah Moore worked tirelessly to defend those who were oppressed and to assist those who were disadvantaged. Sometimes her work came at a cost. Sometimes it brought the disdain of that very same elite class who had once so universally admired her. But nevertheless, she persisted. And the reason that she did is because Hannah Moore lived her life not in service to her own ambitions or success, not in service to her own wants or desires, not in service to the expectations or the aspirations of other people, but in service to God. Of course, in doing so, Hannah's not alone. Thousands upon thousands of saints, both in the Bible and throughout Christian history, have lived their life in service to God. And according to the general thanksgiving, this is precisely how all of us are called to respond to the goodness and gifts of God by offering ourselves to his service. That's one of the ways that we show forth God's praise, by giving ourselves, as the prayer puts it, to your service. Service is a common theme in the New Testament. It's one of the primary ways Jesus describes our relationship to God as, as servants. In multiple of his parables, he uses the analogy of masters and servants. In the parable of the talents, for instance, he describes the kingdom of God by, by talking about a master who gives various amounts of money to some servants and then rewards or punishes them depending on their use of that money. To the servant who has used the money well and wisely in his master's absence, the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. But Jesus doesn't just describe his followers as servants. He also talks about himself that way. And on multiple occasions, he, he tells his followers that they should follow his example. 
in Mark chapter 10, for instance, two of the disciples approach Jesus and they ask him to give them a place of honor. But Jesus reprimands them for their attitude and he says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even more dramatically is the story that the Gospel of John recounts about what Jesus did on the evening of the final supper with his disciples when he rose from where they were sitting and he took up the outfit of a household servant and he started to wash their feet. And then he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Of course, you might have noticed, even in these few passages I mentioned, that Jesus seems to apply this servant metaphor in a couple of different ways. On the one hand, he sometimes uses it as an analogy to describe how within the kingdom of God, how we relate to God. We relate to him as servants to a master. That's the meaning behind a lot of those parables. On the other hand, Jesus also describes himself as a servant, not as a servant who relates to God as a master, but as one who gives up his own life in service to others. And I think that if we're going to understand what it means to give ourselves to service, we need to keep both of these aspects of Jesus' teaching in mind. Giving yourself to service means serving God, but also, or perhaps I should say, precisely by serving your neighbor. The Apostle Paul is someone who understood this well. Paul recognized that the Christian life is one of service. In his letter to the Philippians, he tells them to do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. More specifically, Paul says, follow the pattern of Christ, who willingly set aside the glory and honor he shares with the Father, and who took on the form of a servant, and humbled himself, and and became obedient as a good servant, obedient even to the point of death. That is the model, Paul says, of what we are to do in our lives with one another and in our, our relationship with God. And Paul didn't just teach that, he lived it. From the time he was converted to Christ on that Damascus road until his death, Paul dedicated his life to the service of others by doing whatever it took to bring the good news of the gospel to bear on the lives of thousands of people throughout the Roman world. And in everything he did, he thought of himself not only as a servant to those to whom he ministered, but first and foremost as a servant of God. In fact, that's exactly how he introduces himself in some of his letters. Take, for instance, the opening line of his letter to the Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. That is who Paul was. 
a servant of Christ who gave himself in service to others. So Paul is a model of what we're praying in the general thanksgiving. But even more than that, I think that Paul is also, I think he may be the direct inspiration for this line of the prayer. I have no proof of this. When Bishop Reynolds originally wrote this prayer, he may not have had Paul in mind at all, but something that Paul says in Romans is very close to what this prayer is suggesting. And it can be very helpful to us as we think about it. You can find it in Romans chapter 12. And you've got to keep in mind, you've got to keep in mind that up until this point in the letter, what Paul has been talking about at great length is the manifold and overwhelming gift that God has given in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For 11 chapters, Paul has been focused on this gift. And now, at long last, he begins to talk about our response to that gift. And he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is what gratitude looks like, Paul is saying. This is how we are to respond to the gift of God's immeasurable love in the redemption of the world by presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, consecrated to God. This, Paul says, is what it looks like to show forth God's praise with thankful hearts. But what is a living sacrifice? The language of sacrifice, it, it might for some people conjure up images of slaughtered animals and ritual fires and smoke. But obviously, that's not what Paul has in mind. He specifically says that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, which means that what we are giving in response to God's grace isn't just our body, but our very lives. Everything we do in our bodies is to be offered up to God. As John Calvin comments in his discussion of this verse, it follows that we must cease to live to ourselves in order that we may devote all the actions of our life to his service. And then after saying that we should give ourselves to the service of God, Paul goes on through the rest of Romans 12 and in the chapters that follow, he goes on to describe some of what that looks like. And what it looks like, it turns out, is giving ourselves to the service of one another. Whether that means using the individual spiritual gifts or talents we've been given to help and aid and serve one another, as he says in verses 3 to 8 of Romans 12, or whether that means simply caring for one another's needs in very practical ways, as he describes in the rest of the chapter and in the chapters that follow. What is clear from all this is that the immeasurable gift of God demands an appropriately thankful response. And that thankful response, according to Paul, should take the form of giving ourselves and our lives in service to God. And that brings me to the last point I'd like to make, which is about vocation. Uh, the word vocation simply means calling. And it doesn't the word itself doesn't have any necessarily religious connotations. But it is a word that's 
use very frequently in Christian circles, usually to talk about how an individual person's work relates to their identity as a Christian, or what sort of work an individual Christian ought to pursue. What is my vocation? That's a common question, especially among young people. And there's a whole industry of books that have been written to help people identify or understand their vocation, their calling. And a lot of it's very good. Like Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor. It's a wonderful study on how the work that we do relates to our calling as Christians. And just like Paul, Keller, Keller is very clear that what is of primary importance is that our work is being done in service to God and in service to others. As he puts it very succinctly at one point in the book, our daily work can only be a calling if it is reconceived as God's assignment to others. That quote includes both aspects that I've been talking about of what it means to give ourselves in service. In doing so, we are serving God. It's his assignment. And in doing so, we are focusing on how we can serve others. It's his assignment to others. So it's clear that in many ways, what, what the general thanksgiving is talking about, giving ourselves to service, and what Christians have in mind when they talk about vocation, these are very similar. Both are referring to ways that, ways that we can follow Hannah Moore's example, give ourselves to the service of others in the service to God. But with all of that said, with the good of vocation and the way Christians talk about it, with that said, I do have two cautions about the ways that we sometimes talk and think about that word vocation. First, sometimes we use words like vocation or calling in a way that sounds as if it only refers to those who have dedicated their lives to some kind of formal, full-time Christian ministry. As if a calling is something that a missionary or a nun or a pastor has, but not someone who works in IT. In the Middle Ages, that was a very common way of thinking. In fact, at that time, the word vocation was used almost exclusively to refer to religious vocations, monks and nuns and priests. Uh, thankfully, a lot of the recent things that have been written about vocation, like, like Tim Keller's book, have gone a long way to correcting that error. It's now very common to apply the word vocation to someone's secular workplace. But that leads me to my second caution, which is that sometimes we so conflate vocation or calling with the work that we have that we start to think that a Christian's calling simply is his or her job. So when someone asks you what your vocation is, you might respond, well, I'm a teacher, or I'm a doctor, or I'm a computer programmer. And maybe that's one of the reasons that a lot of Christians, especially young Christians, it's one of the reasons that they feel anxiety over discerning their vocation and deciding what to do, because they think of a career as a distinct and specific calling by God. That's their vocation. And they don't want to choose the wrong career and then miss God's calling. And that's one of the reasons, I think, it's one of the reasons it's helpful 
to remember what Paul says in his letter to the Romans. Because Paul's obviously talking about vocation, calling. He's talking about the ways in which we should devote ourselves in service to God. How do we respond to God in gratitude? But Paul doesn't limit that to what a person does for paid work or what specific career they might pursue. In fact, in Paul's day, very few people had the luxury of choosing between different career choices. Most people's job wasn't a choice. It was just the lot in life to which they were assigned. But that doesn't matter for Paul. What matters for him isn't your career choice. What matters is whether you are serving those around you and specifically whether you are serving others in the Christian community. Whether you do that in a workplace through your job or whether you do it in a retirement community or in your own home, taking care of children or aging parents. The point for Paul wasn't trying to identify a specific job The point was that in whatever you do, in every part of our lives, that we are to present ourselves, present our lives as a sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God, and serve Him by serving those around us. That, for Paul, is your Christian vocation. And that is what we mean when we talk about giving ourselves to your service.